Hello, and welcome to the Let's Talk Transformation podcast. This episode will be all about transformational leadership and how to cultivate transformational leadership. I am delighted to welcome Jardina London, author of Cultivating Transformation, A Leader's Guide to the Soulful and the Practical. Jardina, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. It's great to have you. So, Jardina, you're a consultant, the good kind. We'll come back to that. <laughs> I'll come back to that later on in the discussion. But you've spent the last 25 years finding ways to transform organizations, but ways that can nourish our soul. A quest I'm also on and that we both share, and I think the more the merrier, as we try to move to cultures that are more soulful and that let people thrive. But you actually started out as a tech in tech as a programmer, thinking that technology could maybe solve people's problems and organizations' problems, which you soon found out was maybe not a powerful enough lens, let's put it that way, to understand what was really going on. So, which brings me to your story, which we shared before the show. And I would like to start there, if I may. So with that programmer who was intent on testing the hypothesis that technology could transform organizations successfully, it's a multi-layered subject, but it's at the heart of it, isn't it? So could you share a little bit your story with us and your definition of transformational leadership? Sure. So well, I'll start with my story. It's interesting how you described it. I hadn't really thought about it as that I was trying to have technology solve organizational problems. I just thought, uh, I mean, it would solve some things. We were mm. mostly doing automation back then. But the part that was shocking to me was that all of these really, really, really smart people in technology were failing over and over again to deliver. Mm. So could technology solve the problems? We couldn't even get out of our own way, let alone solve problems. Maybe <laughs> okay. maybe technology can solve organizational problems. I don't think we know yet yeah. because we couldn't even deliver a simple automation on time and on budget in those yeah. days. Interesting. So I just started to peel back. Why, why are we failing so horribly? And it wasn't, you know, techno- a lot of the technology was new, but mm. that's not why. It was because we didn't, we weren't managing it properly. Right? Mm. We weren't managing ourselves. We weren't communicating. It had nothing to do with the tech. Yeah. So that, yeah. that became my quest to find out how do we organize ourselves better and more effectively. Mm. And it's interesting because it's not about expertise, is it? As you say, you knew how the tech worked or you could find out very quickly how the tech worked, right. but that wasn't enough. So how did you get to, and can you share with us, your definition of transformational leadership? Sure. Yeah. So during my quest of trying to figure out how it started with just how to have better meetings, like why were meetings so terrible? And then it became, then I started to get more into this whole body of knowledge that I didn't know Mm. about organizational design, which I didn't even know what that Mm. was back then. But I got into transformational leadership just because of the nature of the work that I do, that is finding new and better ways of working. Mm-hmm. And and how do we introduce that into embedded systems? So, you know, when I think about transformational leadership, you asked about what my definition is. Mm-hmm. It really is anybody who wants to make their world a better place, whatever that means. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't I don't feel like I need to exclude anybody. If you think you're a transformational leader, welcome. Yeah. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> yeah. You don't have to have people working for you. You know, mm-hmm. you can influence people in different ways. And one of the things I think about and I write and talk about a lot is you have an impact on your world. Whether you try or not, you still have an impact on your world. Mm. So what do you want that impact to be? Mm. But I do, when I do talk about like, who is a transformational leader, if the words change agent, pioneer, truth teller, you know, disruptor, like if any of those words resonate with you, you might be a transformational leader. 
And I love that because it's taking leadership down to people's personal agency and their impact on the world. So it isn't about an org chart box. It isn't about a title. It's about who you are, how you show up and, you know, how you're leading yourself first and Mm -hmm. then what impact you're having on your on your system. So it brings Mm -hmm. me back to the idea of like sort of dancing between soulful and practical, which I really I really like. So, you know, if I look at if we take our first step, should I say, onto that dance floor? (laughs) And I really like that analogy because I think, you know, the zoom in, zoom out is very important. And you take those three different lenses of me, so individuals, we, so teams and us, so the organization. Can Mm -hmm. you walk us through those three lenses a little bit more and how they fit into the embedded system that is an organization? Sure. So, right, I use the three lenses, the the me, the we, and Mm. the system, which others have used, so I didn't invent that. Um, I don't want to take credit for that. But I like it because... First of all, like we just talked about a minute ago, mm-hmm. you have an impact whether you like it or not, or mm-hmm. whether you intend to have an impact or not. So being super conscious and aware of who you are and how you're showing up, self-awareness, that kind yeah. of stuff is super important because mm-hmm. you impact the system, right? It's like the butterfly effect. If you're yeah. there, you're changing it. <laughs> so that is a really important place to start. And then you get into the we, because if we are organizing as more than one mm-hmm. person, we need to think about how we connect with people and how we connect people together. Yeah, That's the mobilization of, mm. of an organization. So how do we do that with maybe empathy, rapport? You know, I talk about healing pain. All of those things are about creating that cohesive unit. Mm. And then the last one is the system. And the system is what we naturally tend to jump to, which is that those processes and things and structure that we put in an organization that make it work and support all of the values that we espouse. Mm. So we we do tend to think about system, but if we jump to system without thinking about ourselves and the people, mm. that's when we end up with these systems that don't work very well. Absolutely. And I think it's one of, well, it's one of the questions I get asked the most is how do you scale? How do you, <laughs> and we'll come to that later on around how you scale yeah. into uh, what you define as a soulful organization, which I love as, as an idea, because um, it's really, that's what we're trying to do. But before we go there, what for you are the underlying assumptions, therefore, for leadership to be transformational? Yeah. So the underlying assumptions are that we actually do create organizations for the people in them and society mm. versus what we've done for many years, just the, <laughs> the shareholders, right? Yeah. So And just the, the money. So if you think about these large organizations with a half a million and more people in them, mm. Amazon, is that not part of the community that we're serving? I mean, mm-hmm. we think about employees because that's basically we think about that as our raw materials, but yeah. really they're also the audience, right? I mean, of course, can mm-hmm. sustain ourselves as the people who work there. That that's part of it, and then the other piece is society. Mm-hmm. So the other underlying we talk about, you know, there's a big thing with society's impact from organizations now with climate change and things like that. But what I think we need to start talking about is how we behave when we're at work eight and eight plus hours a day is how we behave in society. Mm. And if we're, if it's like, you can't say we go to work and be miserable for eight hours and then we go live like that is living. (laughs) And that behavior, those behaviors that we practice all day long bleed into how we act as a society. So I think some of those assumptions that this is impacts our world need to be talked about more. Mm, because I think it's become a model, hasn't it, from management practice, but also from the way the industrial revolution and the way work has evolved, that wearing a mask at work is okay. So you have a work mask and a sort of home mask. 
Right. Um, but those work masks become, they start to become our home mask. And I don't think yeah. we realize that. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think that's a self-awareness piece, isn't it? But, you know, the juxtaposition of soulful and, and practical and, and the way they're constantly dancing together. And you talk in the book around transformational leadership is also holding tensions in the mm-hmm. system and holding those polarities of, you know, stable or changing or soulful and practical. So how do they dance together for you in the transformation lenses of me, we, and us? Right. What does that tension look like? So if you think about some of the tensions between the, the mechanics, we yeah. talked about the system. So what's our process? Mm. And what's the process's impact on people's well-being. Let's, mm. let's just say well-being. Mm. <laughs> Keep it simple. We don't even have to get to soulful. Yeah. <laughs> um, and how do those two things interact? I don't think we always think about that. So I think we've spent a lot of time thinking about what the processes are that will make us money and then trying to counterbalance it mm. with some soulful team building, feel good stuff. Mm. Right. It's sort of like, so true. Mm. like so, uh, the, I don't want to, you know, like you do something bad and you counteract it with something good, but they really need to be to, to, together and working mm. in a generative way, not, not a compensation. Mm. So if you think about having a practice that should be soulful or sorry, that's making you money, but how is it also soulful? Because honestly, to make money for the company should actually feed the soul of the organization and the people in it. Mm. So there's no reason that you can have some process. And I give examples, processes that everyone hates, right? Yeah. Performance reviews. Yes. Budget, right. <laughs> there is no reason that they can't be soulful. That's really interesting because I think they were two words before I read your book. They were two words I would never have put in the same sentence. Although I talk about, you know, how do you create regenerative systems? How do you create inclusive systems? But imagining a budget process that's soulful is really hard, I think, today. Mm -hmm. Now, is that because the lens is just I've never seen it happen or because I think it's too innovative for people to take on? Or it's it's interesting. Could you walk us through what a, a soulful budget process might look like i'll walk you through how to think about a soulful budget process yes Um, we can talk about we can talk about what it might be like yeah but when i think about so i have this five steps to soul process and i'll sort of just go through it quickly i won't enumerate the steps but if you think about what was the soulful purpose of this in the first place right there's a reason that we create budget process it's not to make everyone miserable that's not the purpose (laughs) the purpose is to create optimal investment for the Mm. company to fuel us and have us all keep our jobs and Mm. thrive and have Mm. the company thrive. That's the soulful purpose. So where did it get lost is the, is the question, Mm. right? What's making it so so step two, what's making it soul crushing? Mm. Well, because it takes a year and it's a lot of meetings and then you have to be better than your friend and your peer. And there's a lot of dysfunctional things that happen during that process. Mm. So it's a, it's a matter of unpacking those and figuring out how we can get back to the soulful purpose mm. and reimagine what it means to have a budgeting process that feeds and fuels a thriving company and the people in it. Mm. So, you know, there are some examples of what some companies have done to make that happen. And one of the things I talk about is separating the the prioritization, the investment yeah. and the actual funding. So those are two mixed together. Mm. But the other piece is just not having it be everyone vying for scarcity. Yeah, it is. And I've seen this companies actually achieve this where it's not whatever I, you know, it's not a zero sum game Mm. where I get some budget and you don't, and I have to be, I have to win. 
It's what are we doing that's best for the company and how can we all participate in the things that are most effective for the yeah. company? Yeah. So you're coming from a lens of abundance, aren't you? In terms of if I put in place a circular, more regenerative model, which is probably the opposite of a sort of hierarchical sort of scarcity model. Right. So maybe that's the first thought process, but I really like the thought yeah. process of where is it soul crushing? Because we never yeah. ask ourselves that question, but we see soul crushed people or we might feel soul crushed quite a lot, but we never ask ourselves those questions. Right. And and that was one of the other things you might be getting to this question. But if we if we allow that pain to fester, yeah. you can never transform. No. And it does bring me to a question I had about being an organizational healer, which I just love that idea, being an organizational healer. And you tell a great anecdote in the in the book around when you took on that role and how it changed the outcomes. And I would love it if you could walk our listeners through that, but also through the learnings as you went through that process. Sure. That was, you know, and I didn't know I was doing it then, yeah, by the way. That's the best part. <laughs> right, right. I was new in a role. And I went to a meeting that was a status meeting of my boss and her mm. peers with their boss, right? And they invited me for some reason. I was new. Um, <laughs> and they were talking about, it was product development. Mm. They were talking about how they were developing all these products, but they were getting stuck at finance's door because finance had to be able to price them and mm. account for them, right? Mm. And then and account for the revenue, right? And finance had only one person doing that for this giant company. So it, they, it was just a huge bottleneck. And they were all laughing and kind of sarcastic in the meeting, like, this is always a problem. We're just going to keep cranking out problems and we'll let it be <laughs> finance's problem. Like, we'll let it be their fault, mm. it's, but it won't be our fault. Mm. I was like, well, wait a minute. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's not helping the company. And they were just kind of like, oh, you know, you're so naive, you little new girl. And I was like, well, let me work on this. And they laughed hysterically at me and said, you know, that's so cute. But, you know, they let me do it. And I did. And I went in there and I I created a list, a backlog, and they laughed at me. Just a list of prioritization for the products that we wanted them to work on. No big deal. It was a list. Mm. And I actually got slammed by my boss's boss of like, she thinks she can solve this with a list. She has no idea what she's no, doing, all that simple. kind of stuff. Too simple. And I was like, <laughs> okay, well, you've got nothing to lose because you said mm. this is a problem for years. Lo and behold, anyway, short, long story short, it worked. And, all, and I said, like, no one calls finance. Mm. No one calls them except mm. if, if you're at the top of this list. It's a backlog, right? If we're t- for agile people. Yeah. But I didn't know agile. Well, I guess I was sort of learning agile yeah. at the time. But you didn't call it um, backlog. You just yeah, and then all of a sudden, all of a sudden, before you know it, it's a love fest. Like mm. we're having meetings with finance. We're all like, they're all lovey-dovey. Pro- products are flowing through. Everybody's happy. It was kind of unbelievable. Mm. And then they were like, we need lists for everything. Mm. But um, <laughs> but the, the learning that I got from that was, well, first of all, just because everyone thinks that everyone's laughing at you, you can still do it. Right. <laughs> and even just because they threatened to fire you because this is the stupidest idea they ever heard, you can still do it. Mm. And I didn't know. I didn't know if it was going to work, but the, what do you have to lose? But the thing was, everyone was in pain. Mm. Finance was in pain because they were being squeezed to death. Mm. Product development was in pain because the products weren't getting out the door. The organization was losing hundreds of millions of dollars mm. of not having these products. And they, Nobody wanted to sit in the face of that problem that they didn't know how to solve. 
Yeah. So they fell into blame culture, didn't they? Of which your fault, it's your fault, it's their fault, it's his fault, it's her fault. Yeah. But nobody wanted, I mean, I didn't have a complicated solution, but maybe I did. Maybe there was a complicated Mm. solution. But they didn't want to try any solution Mm. because they didn't have one. And it's sort of like, if we don't have the solution, let's not try. And, but that was the biggest point of pain. So my, the, the lesson from that is you need to sit squarely in the pain. Yeah. <laughs> Even yeah. if you don't know how to solve it. Mm. Because what, and then what do you do? Otherwise you're just dancing around the pain. Mm. Yeah. Which is painful. <laughs> which is also, which is prolonged pain. Right? Yeah. 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 But I like the idea of, I think I like it because it means you can have an impact. You can heal some part of pain points in the organization, which brings me to where you talk about the role of top executives and the fact that they often unwittingly cut themselves off from the rest of the organization and therefore the collective intelligence of their organization, but they don't do it on purpose. So how can we counter that blind spot and how can they anticipate the reaction that might mean that they cut themselves off from what they're trying to understand? So if I look at go look sees or understanding what's going on, on on the ground and things like that, you know, how can they guard against that? I think is my question. Guard against, yeah. you know, having that permafrost layer yeah. where they, yeah. Yeah. yeah, where they freeze themselves out. Yeah, right, right. So <laughs> there's a couple of things there, but one I would go back to the me. Mm. Which is, there's something to unpack there in terms of what you're afraid of, because a lot of times I find that they don't want to know that people are unhappy, mm. but they, they ask don't the question. As a matter of fact, I was in a meeting not too long ago mm-hmm. where we knew every that people were super frustrated and they went and reported upwards of like, you know, we haven't shared the information. People don't know. They're not upset, but they know you haven't mm-hmm. shared it, but it leaked and everyone yes. knows and everyone's yeah. upset. So we can sort of like try to buffer that, but mm-hmm. it's, so that buffering is not, is not helpful, you know, mm-hmm. so that, that information does need to be. I think it was discouraged from sharing bad news, right? So mm-hmm. that allowing bad news to be shared. Now, there's one thing that you, people used to say in organizations, and maybe they still do, where leaders would say, don't bring me problems, bring me, bring me solutions. solutions. Yeah. And then, so what happens then? If I don't have a solution, I'm not going to bring the problem to you. Yeah. And that means you never get to find out because I didn't have a solution. Just like this mm-hmm. example I just gave you. Mm-hmm. People didn't have a solution to that problem, so why raise it? Mm-hmm. Because we've been told not to. Yeah. And yeah. And so it's just a knock on effect of assumptions because nobody ever voices them. But then that gets internalized, doesn't it? Which brings me to the sort of idea of an intention action gap, which Mm -hmm. is very prevalent in organizations. I often link it to diversity and inclusion in the fact of understanding the impact of your words from your position with your lens and not necessarily being able to anticipate the impact of what's happening in someone else's head or life or context because you don't see it and you talk about the intention and action gap in your in your book can you tell us a little bit more about that so we've just had a great example of what it could look like how do you as a transformational leader step into that process and Mm -hmm. leverage something from it yeah so one of the biggest things for transformational leaders is curiosity yeah so I think if you shift to curiosity instead of knowing and being rewarded for always knowing, you can ask the question of, and you don't even have to be afraid of people having an adverse reaction. It's just Mm -hmm. like, well, what, why is that? You can be Mm -hmm. curious about it. But I think the other piece of the um, intention 
uh, what did you call it? Intention, intention to action gap. Yeah. Yes. I didn't call it that in the book, but I like that, yeah. that term intention to action gap is yeah. So the, it, I mean, it sort of goes down to the same thing, but actually asking. Yeah. So when I coach teams and leadership teams in particular, a lot of times there's a lot of speculation, like mm-hmm. we know from the survey that people aren't engaged. So let's brainstorm here on how we can solve it and then roll out a solution. And a lot of times my coaching, my very simple, and here's a freebie for you, coaching <laughs> is, why don't you ask them? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Asking you a know, different question. Yeah. You, you found out what the problem is and that's the first step, but you can go ask them like, hey, here's how we're thinking of solving the problem that you've reported. How does that sound? But mm. that simple step before the rollout and design, the design and rollout doesn't always happen. No, or very rarely happens. It reminds me of the, where are we soul crushed? I mean, it's just different questions, isn't it? That can be very powerful mm-hmm. if you listen to the reply because they're outside of uh, the institutionalized um, process. Let's put it that way. Oh, yes. That's a very nice way of articulating it. The questions. <laughs> so that, so you just gave me an aha moment. Thank you. Um, <laughs> Because clients like me because I ask the questions that aren't normally asked. And I mm. never really understood what I was doing exactly that they were liking. Mm. But that's mm. what it is. I'm asking questions outside of the institutional framework of questions. Yeah, because <laughs> systems have a memory, don't they? Like a muscle memory. And I think that's what happens. And that it's not done like that around here. It's translated into, that's a weird question. <laughs> so, and some people will get defensive and some people might not. Yeah. Yeah. So there's some diplomacy around asking how you ask the questions. Yeah. But, um, but yeah. I do, I ask a lot of questions that seem to sh- be disruptive and shake people up. Like, you know, when we talk about a classic one is we talk about strategy and, and goal setting or OKRs. And nowadays we call mm-hmm. it uh, objectives and key results. But I always ask the question when I look at people's strategy, like, so what does that mean? How do you know if you're not meeting the strategy? What would that look like? What is what does best in class mean to you? Hmm. I never asked those. They all went best in class. Yeah, that sounds great. <laughs> but no one ever said, what is best in class? <laughs> yeah, they want best practice. Yeah, right. Yeah. But those those questions, I guess, that are outside the norm that shake shake up mm. the thinking a bit. Mm. That brings me to even the title, your title, the title of your book, Cultivating Transformation. That really drew my attention. I was like, oh cultivating transformation that and it and you're right it comes from the more soulful side of compassion and growing and nurturing and I'm really interested to see how people react to those words coming together cultivating transformation and what does it mean for you at a deeper level so I put those I chose that title after Mm -hmm. many months of struggle I chose (laughs) that title because I think a lot about living systems. And I work with a colleague, um, Sally Parker, who's really mm-hmm. an expert on living s- organizations as living systems. But when we think about the difference between building a machine and building a living system or creating mm-hmm. a living system, mm-hmm. you, you build a machine yeah. and it lives in the box that you've built and it does ideally what you've designed it to do. Yeah. Living systems are more about growing something that will adapt on its own beyond your design. Mm-hmm. Right. So it can surprise mm. you and it can adapt. And so you're really planting seeds, mm. and cultivating them and, and, you know, pruning <laughs> and nurturing, but it's going to do what it's going to do. And, and honest truth is when we think we're building a, a, an organization as a machine, it's still a living system. Yeah. <laughs> That's why it does things that we don't expect it to do. And then we're surprised yeah. no matter, no matter what you think mm. you're doing, you are actually cultivating a living system. You just may be 
creating a one that's not growing very and not flourishing mm. or not thriving. So that's why I chose the word cultivating because it is about gardening. Yes. It is not about chess mastering, you know, master manipulator. <laughs> yeah, which often is, I mean, so power dynamics exist in all systems, don't they? But, mm-hmm. but I think it's often seen like that. And we plant the seeds of innovation. Let's put it, let's corporate speak. We plant the seeds of innovation and then we just look and watch to see if they grow. But there's no watering, there's no cultivating, there's no gardening um, like that. And I think it's really interesting to think of one, organizations as living systems, yes, but how you cultivate them. Um, right. and, and I think that's the part that's missing today from strategic thinking at the top, at the top of organizations, how do we cultivate the new behavior or the new human systems we want to create? And I like the idea of ecosystems, the me, we, us, and therefore, how do you cultivate that across those concentric circles? And it brings me to, so for me, human systems are about messy problems. You know, bridging digital and human is always about messy problems. And one of your takeaways that you give in the book is, let it be messy. And I really like that. And so can we just dig into that a little bit? I love it. What's messy and why should we let it be messy? So I think one of the assumptions you asked me at the beginning about some of the assumptions that we have to maybe let go of Mm. is that things should be neat and orderly in order. And that means that they're effective. Mm. So I do an exercise with teams where, and I I got this from somebody, so I don't want to steal it, where there's a lot of exercises like this. When we think about self-organizing teams, that's Mm. why I started doing it, where we say like, okay, we want everyone to line up and we'll pick someone as a manager to line them up by last name. And then, and no, you know, no talking kind of yeah, thing. Yeah. <laughs> and I time it and it doesn't matter. 20 people, 50 people. It takes like, I mean, it's, it's harder when there's more people, but maybe mm-hmm. it's like five to seven minutes to line up all these people. And it's very orderly. They're doing like kind of a binary sort. Mm-hmm. They're moving people around. They're fine. Sometimes they know their last name and sometimes they don't. So they have to ask, but you know, it takes a few minutes and then we say, great job. Then I say, okay, now line yourselves up by birthday, which you probably don't know each other's birthday. Mm-hmm go. <laughs> and it doesn't matter if I have 20 people or 50 people or hundred people, it's like about 25 to 30 seconds. But what happens during that 25 to 30 seconds? It's loud. Yeah. It's chaos. People are bumping into each other. Someone yeah. holds up their hand and says, April. I mean, it's they're, they're yelling. Mm. And I ask the question at the end in the debrief, what would happen if your vice president walked in during the first one? Good job. Mm. What would happen if your vice president walked in during the second one? Fired Jardina. She's crazy. <laughs> because it looked very messy and chaotic. Mm. But what was the out the outcome was in a fraction of the time we organized mm. ourselves. So mm. it doesn't always, and the lesson from the biggest lesson from that, although there are many, is it doesn't have to look neat and orderly to be effective. Mm. In fact, it probably doesn't. It doesn't ever look neat and orderly <laughs> as a first as a first stop, does it? Right, right. No, it doesn't. But that's okay if you're mm. looking at if you're paying attention to the outcome. But mm. if you're judging on the orderliness and that that makes you feel safe and certain, mm. that false sense of certainty, you know, mm. but and that's, then, what, that's what we're conditioned to do. Yeah, which is missing the messy part of what makes it so creative. <laughs> also, in terms, I think. Often people, and this is feedback I get from leaders, they're, they're scared is maybe too big a word. They're reticent to have 
difficult conversations if that's what com- comes out of a messy process. So there are always uncomfortable things that come out of messy processes because humans are what humans are. And so I think it's interesting to look at, you know, how we can equip each other to have those more difficult conversations because that's what messiness is also about, isn't it? And that's where you get your creativity from. Um, Yeah. And those messy conversations, the difficult conversations, I think that is where the rubber meets the road. Yeah. Having those sets an organization apart from one who doesn't. And and one of the other things when I coach transformational leaders Mm. is I think we make assumptions about some of the people around us, like whether or not they're worth having a difficult conversation with. Definitely. And and my mm. coaching on that is it's always worth it for you to mm. develop your trans to develop your leadership by having that conversation. You may decide that that person is not in the right job. Mm. You may at the end of the day decide that, but you need to go through the 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 right process to get mm. there and mm. not avoid it. <laughs> Yeah. So it's like going to the gym, isn't it? You're exercising that muscle, whatever happens. Yeah. You need to do the right thing. And also people see, you know, other people are seeing you do the right thing. And also you might end up finding out something that you didn't know, but even absent that, right. Do Mm. the right thing. Mm. So I think those difficult conversations are so important. Mm. And if I take that and we try and scale that skill, because I love the last chapter around how you scale this because it, well, how you sort of operationalize it and how you scale it. Two different things, but the same. So how you make it practical and soulful, I suppose. Um, yeah. <laughs> and, and you go through the different types of organizations around, you know, deeply curious organizations or emotionally literate organizations or, you know, curious organizations and soulful organizations. So I was really interested in the idea of collective identity and collective emotional intelligence and what actually makes a soulful organization Mm -hmm. could you walk us through not only what is a soulful organization for you but also how you can scale those skills yeah so let's talk about so what I did in that chapter that you're referring to Mm -hmm. is I took all of those skills that we apply to ourselves as individuals and applied them at at an organizational level so I do love the word operationalize mm. because, and it doesn't sound soulful, but <laughs> because because I think a lot of the people out there that are espousing collaboration and mm. organ in, on organizational like cohesion, mm. um, they don't give an operational support for it. They no. just, it's just like, hey, let's talk about experimenting and let's talk about um, embracing failure, celebrating failure, but there's no operational way to support it. So. Mm if you lose the people who believe that in their hearts, you fall flat. So yeah. your leader that loved celebrating failure, which I have a lot to say about that, but just yeah. as an example, um, if that leader leaves, then they're left in the dust because that mm. there was no, it wasn't operationalized. Mm. So I do think, and so there are ways to do that. You need to put some structure and process in place that then works. And when someone who doesn't believe it comes in, it doesn't matter if they believe mm. it or not because it's working and it's effective. Back to your question of, you know, what does it look like to have a soulful organization? So like we were just talking about, that's the practical is that it actually does have operational support Mm -hmm. for some of these values. So Mm -hmm. when I think about something like, I don't know, uh, emotional literacy, when we have practices in place that are embedded in the organization for naming emotions Mm in a healthy way, for example, Mm -hmm. um, check-ins. Check-ins is a great way to maybe me- uh, mechanize that. Then that, again, like that operationalizes it. We don't have to, it's not all talk. It turns mm-hmm. into action mm-hmm. and it turns into embedded action. 
Yeah. So if you think of, and it's really easy, if it's hard to think about the soulfulness, you can think, I often find it useful to think about the soul. Like, what's the opposite? What's the soul crushing? Yeah. Soul crushing is that we have practices in place that are embedded that crush souls, <laughs> right? Yeah. So how do we then flip it to have practices in place that help souls flourish? Mm. Yes. Yeah, so so some of that might be also like escalation things. Yeah. Right. So what's what are our practices there to bubble things up when they're not working? Mm. And as opposed to shutting things down, it's opening things up, isn't it? Which is which is for me linking back to the cultivating verb of, you know, if you put developmental practice in place, as you say, it doesn't matter if one leader walks out and another one comes in, the change is already developmental, if you like, and sustainable in the organization. Right. Um, I would like to come back to failure though. Failure because everybody mm-hmm. talks about, oh, you just need to fail fast, you need to allow failure, let's just allow people to fail and I think that's a really interesting one, and I would love your opinion on that as a topic, but also as how you scale that, how you scale that acceptation of failure in a culture. So I don't necessarily subscribe to the word, and I used it, I know, a minute ago, but I don't necessarily subscribe to celebrating failure. Yeah, tell us why not. (laughs) And I guess my my dispute there isn't isn't that you should, isn't the opposite. I'm not mm-hmm. saying you should beat people when they fail. I'm saying I just, the, my, the definition of the word failure, I have trouble with the way it's being used. Mm. So I'll tell you something that happened way before I was in this field. I was in my twenties and I had a roommate who said, who asked me one day, she said, how do you do everything you do without being afraid of failure? And I was like, well, I never fail. And she said, but you do. And she lit, went on to list 10 things I had failed. at, And I was like, but those aren't failures. Those were learnings. And I know that that's, you know, of course the rhetoric says that, mm-hmm. right. But I really thought that like, I just, I, I did fail, but then I learned and did something better, you know, the next year or the next decade, like who mm-hmm. knows when, but I just never, I just never framed it in my head as a failure. I framed it in my head as something I learned. Mm-hmm. And so when we say celebrate failure, are we really celebrating failure? Or are we celebrating learning? And I love so, that. I love that question. I think it's a really important question. Yeah. And I don't mean it like to be mm. all positive about, I'm not trying to be positive about it. That's really how I feel. <laughs> mm. Because I think it then gets, if we go back to in, into institutionalized processes, so mm. failure is not particularly, not even celebrated, spoken about or accepted. And then we tell people to fail fast, whatever that means, because that can mean, as you say, people have very different lenses on this. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So yeah. Learn fast. Yeah, I like, <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, how do you go about operationalizing that mindset shift then? Because in 90% of the people I work with and what I see in organizations, failure is a negative word that they've asked to make positive. So fail fast is now positive. It doesn't matter if you lose budget, but the reality of when you do that, you often get the reverse, the intention action gap. You often get that surprise of, oh, I thought we were meant to fail fast. Right. So what I, what some of my clients are doing, which I think is fantastic, mm-hmm. is framing everything as an experiment in the first mm-hmm. place. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and it's not so in the early days and still some now, I guess it was like, we'll run an experiment or a pilot yeah. and then we'll roll it out. It's always an experiment, isn't it? It's an experiment the whole way. So mm-hmm. thinking about it with as experiment and hypothesis. So here's another example, metrics. Everyone loves metrics. Even I love <laughs> metrics. But what are metrics for? Are metrics to show that you're doing a good job and whether or not you're on track Mm. or are metrics to prove your hypothesis? 
continually and know when to pivot and change course. So we talked about this in the 90s. We would say like decision support metrics, but we didn't use it for that. We used it for, are you good or are you bad? (laughs) Right? Judgment. Mm. Judgment, right. So if we start using metrics for proving ourselves wrong. I when we design them, I say I want you to design them before you start having it be your baby of how will you know when you're doing the when you're wrong. Your mm. hypothesis is wrong, you're working on the wrong stuff, it's not good for the company. Like how mm. will you know? Mm. And how can we have that conversation? Let's get ready to have that conversation before you start. Mm. But that mm. conversation and as a matter of fact, I heard someone the other day saying we have to do a good job so that we will continue to get budget. Mm. And I said if you, you might do a really good job proving that this is the wrong product mm, yes. <laughs> and, <expand. laughs> mm. and that's okay. What's, what is wrong with that? That's exactly working correctly that you've proven that this is a bad investment for the company mm. and you all need to go work on a better investment and disband. What's wrong mm. with that? <laughs> no, it's just never framed like, well, never. It's not often framed like that, is it? And I think that's the yeah. shift, isn't it? So what, how does right. a transformational leader go about negotiating that? in an organization that doesn't work like that. So there's a lot here that's language, Mm. which is hard to change language. I admit Mm. that. But when the language is, is this still a good investment? Like, so when we look at our metrics, when we have a quarterly review, a status update, whatever, Mm. OKRs, whatever it might Mm. be, the leader should be asking, is this still a good investment? Did we learn anything that tells us that this is a bad investment? Did we learn anything that tells us that this is a great investment and we should double down and take funding from somebody else? Like mm. maybe that's the case. Mm. Funding and, and, you know, they can come help us. Mm. Those are the questions to be asking, not or is it on track and if and why not? You know, mm. <laughs> mm. who do I need to go? And sometimes the question where, where leaders want to support say, who do I need to go push? But mm. it's not about who do I need to push? It's about what is good for all of us. Mm. Which brings me back to the idea of metrics and what we're measuring and why brings me back mm-hmm. to DE&I. So I work a lot in DE&I and mm-hmm. you discuss it in your book and say that, you know, DE&I, the leaders have to have done their own DE&I work before they look at how they can operationalize it or scale it or whatever. Can you tell yeah. us a little bit about what you mean by their own DE&I work? So my feeling on that topic in my book was I can't not touch on it yeah. because it's so important to a transformational lead. And also, yeah. it's also a can of worms that could be its own book. Yes, of course. All I really say in the book is you better not forget this and, mm. uh, and go read a different book, right? So <laughs> not those words. But um, the reason it's so important for them to do their own work is because if you don't have diversity, equity, and inclusion... So think about each of those words separately. Yeah. You can't possibly transform an organization or even a team, right? So if you don't have diversity mm-hmm. of diversity of whatever, yes, right? yes, absolutely, then you're missing out on benefits to your team. Mm. Now, if you don't, you know, if you need to do your own inner work to allow for that and welcome it, mm. then you need to because it's going to be of very course. valuable for you mm. as a person, as a team, as a company. Equity and inclusion too. Same thing, right? Like if you're not having a team that's inclusive, then mm. you're not able to collaborate. You don't have psychological safety. All the things that you need mm. to have a cohesive and adaptive organization. And adaptive is another one, right? Mm. If you don't have if you don't have diversity, equity, inclusion. There's no way you can be adaptable. No, because no. when the winds when the winds change, all of the sameness yeah. says 
you know, Blockbuster is always the example, right? All yeah. of the same people with the same way of thinking and the same background have the same opinion. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> right? yeah. Yeah. And it's so important because you, you need conscious inclusion for me to have transformation or innovation. And what I liked about what you were saying in the book is you've put it up there with the strategic objectives of you need this. This, this is a, a part, a foundational part of transforming and being a transformational leader. It's table stakes, right? Yeah. Yeah. So you were asking, you were going to say something about metrics with um, diversity. Yes. And it always reminds me of metrics because I have this discussion a lot around what are we measuring in diversity, equity and inclusion and why are we measuring it? And my quest is to take it away from being a HR tick box exercise with percentages of women and percentage of this and that. And for us to ask ourselves the question, practitioners as well, what are we measuring and why? And I think that's a very interesting discussion around the outcomes of what we want from DE and I work and and how it becomes transformational. So as you were talking about OKRs and KPIs and managing what you can measure or not, depending on, you know, it just brought me to the subject of DE and I because I think it's often measured in a way that isn't helpful. I was going to say in the wrong way, but that's that's a judgment. So in a way that isn't helpful. Right, right. I agree. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't even know how you would even, the unhelpful way, the measures are so inaccurate mm-hmm. when I think about them. Like, how can you really measure, you know, some of the diversity? Because, mm-hmm. you know, we have, there's such a vast array of different types of people in the world. So how are you measuring that? So mm-hmm. I think measuring, yeah, looking at measuring the, the outcome of diversity versus mm-hmm. the input of mm-hmm. diversity is maybe more useful. Yeah, which is what brings me to the subject of transformational leadership, because it's about, that's a big part, isn't it, of creating the conditions for transformation. Right, right. Mm-hmm. And those might be the inputs. Yeah. Right? Those might be seeking more diversity. That's the input. That's yeah. the creating the condition. And then yeah. the outcome is you have a, a vast array of perspectives on your team. Mm. Yeah, or getting curious, like we've already said, or reframing failure as learning or or whatever else we decide to do that fits into the model of that fits in with the culture of where I work. Jadine, time is running, but I would have a last question of what would be your call to action for people listening, thinking, I really like the idea of cultivating transformation. Mm -hmm. Today, we've got practical things, but we don't have either we don't have soulful things or we haven't linked it to soulful things. What would your call to action be to those people? So I'm just going to reiterate a few things and sum up what we talked about. The first piece of the, so let's do the me, the we, and the system. I'll give yeah. you a call to action for each. So in the me, it's like know thyself, which mm. right, it is know your impact that you're mm. having and, and just start to become aware of that. And really the biggest thing you can do as a leader is look for blind spots. Yeah. Look for people who will tell you your blind spots, by the way, because as you move up, they'll tell you the less and less <laughs> tell you your blind spots. So seek out those blind blind spots so you can know your impact. Um, as a we, we talked about healing the pain. There's transformation mm. is not possible if pain exists. Mm. So go for that pain and sit in it, sit in it until you can solve it, solve it collaboratively, whatever you need to do, but at least acknowledge it mm. and, and sit in that pain. And then from a system perspective, you know, incremental change. Yeah. <laughs> we didn't yeah. really talk about that, but that those stepping stones, mm. make, make the step you can make. Um, Aaron Dignan calls it in the Brave New Work. He talks about the adjacent possible. When you move to that next stepping stone that's possible, 
you can you have a different perspective of what's possible next. Mm-hmm. When you try and pre prescribe all of the steps to get you to done, you don't even know what's out there at step 10. You don't know what's what it looks like to stand in step nine. Mm. So just step where you can step with the intention of moving forward. Mm. The adjacent possible. I like that. Letting things emerge and then seeing what's Mm -hmm. possible. Excellent. I'm going to leave our listeners with that. Georgina, thank you so much for coming and sharing your thoughts and your book and your insights with us. Where can people find out more about you and what you do and your book? Sure. So I can give you a couple of links that you can put in the show notes, but I will do. Super. So my personal site is jardinalondon.com. The book site is cultivatingtransformations.com. And then my business site, because I always love to have new business, is rosettaagile.com. Excellent. Thank you. Thank you once again. Thank you so much. We hope you enjoyed this episode and the learning it brought. And if so, please head over to iTunes and give us your feedback and your review. And it's bye from me for now and see you soon for the next episode of Let's Talk Transformation. Mm -hmm.